if you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. I'd like to welcome back John and McLean to Horse Chats today. John has talked to us many, many times before. If you haven't listened to John before, just go back to horsechats.com, search for John or search for McLean. But last time we talked about the evolution of the horse-human relationship. We did part one, so this is part two. Now, even if you are really keen to listen to John, at least listen to, say, his first episode where he talks a bit about himself and his background then talk about this evolution of the horse-human relationship, which was episode 816. But look, before we do that, I'd just like to remind you about International Horse College. And if you've got the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, have a look at their website, internationalhorsecollege.com, registered trainee organisation 31352, or talk to the friendly team about a course, a course that you might be interested in enrolling to find out a little bit more. And details on the website too, the phone number and contact details. Now, Jonna, welcome back. Uh, thank you, Glenis. And um, hopefully, hopefully we'll have a clear line. The storms have all passed now, so hopefully... This one will go smoothly. Well, I was certainly a bit worried. We tried this sort of two nights ago and, um, yeah, there was a lot of interference and then your phone was out last night. So, you know, we've, we sort of had a little bit of a hiccup there, but uh, pretty excited to keep going. Now, we talked about the evolution of the horse-human relationship last time and I think we talked about 5,500 years ago, you know, 4,000 years ago and sort of took us all the way through. We talked about you know, chariots and how we used horses for farming and and then even started riding them. But I think you were just going to go over something about the introduction of metal shoes. Do you want to just have a quick chat about that? And then we'll talk about some more modern times. Okay. So, Glennis, about four, they think around about 400 BC, they uh, came across... Um, in graves that were buried with uh, with people that the invention of the hipper sandal, which was just a leather sandal to cover the horse's foot to protect it from sharp objects and abrading away so they could then ride further and longer with those leather sandals. And, and in Asia, they used, you know, more natural products. When I say more natural products, I mean more plant-based products. And it's really not the, not really until about they think around about 400 um, AD, so, you know, 800 years later, that the, the first evidence of metal shoes came about. And then ultimately they were made out of bronze, which would be absolutely amazing to think of that nowadays because bronze is quite a, a, a semi-precious metal. Um, so they used bronze to um, put on their horse's feet. But the real reason behind it was because the longevity of the horse's wool and its foot as a protection mechanism, was the primary objective. And so they think that around about 400 BC to 500 BC, the very first evidence of nailed-on metal shoes were found in a Frankish tomb. So that's a long time ago. So farrier has been it's a, it's an ancient form. It's really been going for a long, long time. 
Certainly has, and we've certainly um, evolved quite a lot from the, I suppose, the initial hipper sandals. Yes. Yeah, yes. So, Jonna, just taking us back to last time, we sort of went through, we talked a little bit about dressage, but I think we sort of got to, you know, I don't know, 1800s. What about the early 1900s? Tell us a little bit about the evolution, you know, because we talked about the evolution of the horse boat. It's really that horse-human relationship that we're focused on now? Well, the, the 1900s, um, earlier in the 1900s, of course, we had um, the very first Olympic Games where eventing was, was carried out. So there was the rise of sport and lots of people were still riding horses. And it was also the beginning of the industrialisation age. So uh, the mechanisation age or the industrial revolution. So engines were being devised and they were going to be used for transport of all sorts, whether it be on the farm or or... Um, from an industrial point of view, including ships. You notice that at that time there was a big transfer from sailing ships to steam boiler ships, etc. And, of course, the very first consequence of that is that horses then were not required as much as they were because now there were engines about. However, in saying that, there was still a, a huge number of horses used in the, in the First World War. It was, or the number of horses in 1900 was 21 million, and that peaked about 1915, which of course is the First World War, was 26 million was the population of horses that they thought. So there was a huge shift after that time and the advent of tanks. So, and of course, we all know about the Light Horse Brigade and we also talk about other brigades that were then became mechanised. They were no longer on horses anymore. They were now in tanks or in armoured vehicles, of course. And so the horses um, weren't required anymore. But in the First World War and also in the Second World War, huge amounts of horses, donkeys and mules were used for the transport of all sorts of logistics, armaments and food supplies, medical supplies, carrying out the wounded. And also, of course, when I briefly talked about eventing before, we were still using the messaging system on horseback to get swift messages to and from the front line back to the command post so we could take on-time decisions could be made. And that's sort of where the rise of eventing came, is that horses were then used to obviously go cross-country and become very, very tough in terms of their endurance and their stamina, and that was really the cross-country phase. And then it evolved into also we used the show-jumping phase as a way of being able to have the dexterity and manoeuvrability of the horse over a fence, and exactly the same for ground control being able to manoeuvre the horse very accurately in close combat situations, and that's where the emergence of dressage came from. And in saying that, just continuing that, and another ancient sport that my father was actually involved in heavily, I remember him talking to me about it, was um, tent pegging. And tent pegging is, not many people know about tent pegging. Um, we didn't do it at Pony Club. I would have loved to have done it. Um, I'm not sure why we didn't do it, but tent pegging is, is the art of being able to ride your horse in a straight line, so often in teams and you ride in a straight line and you have to use a lance or a spear or something with a point on the end of it and you have to gallop straight down a long run and then pick up a peg. And the peg is made of something wood or bamboo or compressed bark or whatever it is driven into the ground and you gallop your horse flat out down this straight and then you pick up the peg. The idea of this was that, of course, in army camps, we had heaps and heaps of soldiers being uh, in tents in big long rows of tents and so the opposing armies would 
marauded straight down the hill on these horses and they would just lift up the tent pegs that would trap all the soldiers in their tents. And, of course, the rest is history. So that's, that's the emergence of tent pegging. So there are lots of things to do with horse history that has um, been centred around um, war and the, and the evolution of, of training and tactics and the gear used, etc., etc. It's quite it's a long, long list. It is, isn't it? You know, you're thinking about the history and the history of horses and all the time that we've covered with them. Tent pegging, is that a purely Australian sport? No, no, no. It's a worldwide sport. um, Yeah, when I was in India, um, uh, um, this is quite a while ago, 2014, I was in India in in a show jump team, and um, they gave us a demonstration of tent pegging their, their army still to this day, in order to go into the Army or the Air Force or um, even in the Navy, they have to do compulsory horse riding and they spend two years doing that. And part of that is a display, a cavalry display, and then another one was tent pegging. And it was just amazing how adept these riders were and the, and the ponies um, that they were galloping down, how, how accurately they could do it. It was just amazing. It was the very first time that I'd seen it in a competition sense. So I'd seen it on film and I'd seen it on video, but I had never seen it in real life. So it's a very, very widespread um, sport. But I think it was, uh, I'd have to do more research, but I have a feeling that it's a very British sport. Okay, okay. Now, thinking about the horses, and you said, I think you said 21 million and then um, First World War, 26 million. Are there more horses today or there were more then? Um. No, well, there's, there was more horses then, but there are more horses used in sport now. The difficulty in trying to get numbers, America have um, very good statistics on how many horses they have, but it's actually not that easy to find out the total number of um, horses on the planet. So, uh, we're, we're, and we're talking about horses that are used, you know, for sport and recreation, and that includes racing, et cetera, et cetera. So there are less horses than there were then, and, of course, that would be true because... So many people depended upon horses for their livelihoods and for their transportation, getting to school, just going to work, and um, uh, moving materials about. It was, you know, when you think about how many how many cars are on the road today. If we didn't have cars, we'd all be riding horses. It would be a lot of horses. Yes, yes. So you, sorry, you don't have the details in. So there were no, I don't, I don't have the, I don't have the total global number. I know that in America there are. Um, 150,000 mares covered each year for for the American stud book. So there's a um, at least you know 100,000 uh, attempts at uh, new horses trying to be created, and that's just for racing alone. That's not including anything else. So that's that's quite a large number considering that we don't use horses now as a necessity. We just use horses for. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot off the press notification. That is that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 
101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. But I think the popularity of the sport, and, and also not just the popularity of the sport, the popularity of things like equine-assisted therapy, you know, using horses yeah. to help in a much broader idea so that having a horse or being in contact with a horse is not just about the riding. There's so many other benefits to have yeah. horses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Because the number of horses declined, you know, and, and we're talking about the wars, do you know how many horses died in total of the Great Wars? I think around about eight, eight, eight million, and that inclu- included donkeys and mules, which is a huge amount. It is. Um, like Germany alone lost 2.7, 2.7 million in the Great War. So, you know, that is a, a huge amount, isn't it? That is just bigger than belief. That's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yep, yep. So thinking about, you know, the amount of horses that are there today, what do you think is the future of horse sports in the world? Well, it is a really big question, but I think the question has to be centred around, um, you know, humane treatments of horses because we are now so much in the public eye. Everywhere we go, there's a camera, there's somebody filming you. We have to be so careful with what we do and what we say in the treatment of not just horses but everything. But getting back to horses, I think that one of the things that is going to really shape the way that we do things is the public's perspective on what they think is cruel and what we think is cruel. You know, the days have gone by now. It was not that long ago I was looking at some photos of um, I was playing cushion polo as a kid at Pony Club and I'm hanging off my horse and, you know, his mouth is open and his eyes are really wide and the horse doesn't look very happy at all, but we're all having fun. I think those days are probably, you know, not that accepted anymore. So we have to try and make sure that the future welfare of the horse and the safety of the rider is being preserved and promoted all the way through. And, of course, now we have things like uh, disabled Olympic Games and people even ride horses in disabled Olympic Games. So we have to really make sure that people stay safe. So in order to do that, I think that the the way forward, in my own opinion, is to really make sure that our horses are really well-trained because really well-trained horses are very comfortable in their own skin. And and to use an anthropomorphic term, they seem quite happy and settled in themselves. So any animal that is actually really well trained is is quite settled and um, and comfortable. So I think that we have to really make sure that we train our horses really well and make sure that we don't use any conflicting signals on a day to day basis. Or even when we change riders, you know, we give our give our riders an adequate brief as to what we should expect from this horse and what they should do about it. So that at least there's some consistency in the application of those signals that can then flow on to the next rider after that. So I think that the future is actually all about horse welfare and making sure that we don't... Uh, we're not seen to be, can I say, mining horses or using horses in a way that is really purely only for our own ego to the detriment of the horse. And, and that isn't just the horse world, that's probably the animal kingdom all told, especially the companion animal world when we talk about dogs and cats and especially horses. So even now in Australia, it is, and I've said this before, I think on another interview, it is so affordable to have a horse. You know, I'm, I teach students, and they're full-time students, and they have horses. 
And there's no way known I could have avoided a horse when I was a student. I was riding everybody else's horses because I couldn't afford to take one. But now it's really easy to have a horse. You know, you get given a horse and all you've got to do is find a, a paddock. And Australia is great like that. There's always plenty of space to pop a horse in there and, and care for it and ride it and do whatever you'd like to do with it. So I think the future is actually all about horse, horses' welfare and understanding the science behind that is going to be not always in line with the public opinion. And somewhere along the line, um, we have to have a, a very intelligent discussion with the uh, public opinion versus the scientific community and say, OK, well, what, what is the proper and just way to be able to take this whole thing forward from an ethical sense and a humane sense? Well, I'm just thinking because, you know, you, you're saying that your opinions have changed, you know, just to do with horse sports with the emphasis on on horse welfare. And, Johnny, you've been really at the forefront, you and Andrew, you know, of of that science-based research, you know, so that we know that the horse is communicating in this way and this is what happens. And even if the horse looks quiet when the pulse rate goes up like that, you know, there there's something going on. Um, mm. Is the rest of the world like that? I mean, I suppose this is a chat all in itself, isn't it? You know, just to start off and say, well... However many years back this research was happened and then we've complemented it with this and this and this. Yeah, I suppose I suppose the world is changing though, isn't it? I'd like to think that the world is changing. It's not just one small little area and a couple of people, but the world is a lot more accepting now. We talk we start talking about horse welfare and the requirements of the horses. Yes, and the requirements of horses in different countries is different, so it's not the same the world over. It'd be lovely if it was true. Mm. But I, and I was talking before about when I was in India, we were just talking about when I was looking at the tent pegging and the way that they cared for their horses was completely different to the way that they, we care for our horses in Australia. And the things that they were doing were quite shocking to us. And yet the horses seemed quite comfortable with it. They didn't mind the fact that they were treated in a certain way when they were being tacked up or when they were being ridden because they were really ridden just like machines there. And a lot of countries are like that. So we can't then say, okay, well, you're a country that doesn't treat your horses as well as us. You're going to have to do better than that. All we can do is try and set an example of um, how things should be done. And hopefully people will follow suit. And, and gradually over the time that has happened, and I've seen a huge change in the last 10 years, it's been absolutely enormous and life-changing for me. My own experiences with that have been that now I'm really careful with what I say, what I do, how I go about it. And yes, sometimes you do have to use pressure, but we have to be careful with unconfused pressure with cruelty because cruelty is a definition that means that when you are applying pressure to the horse and it can't escape the pressure, no matter what it does, then that's them to be cruel. Whereas in training, you may have to use some pressure to motivate the horse to do an action. As long as you take it away, then it's not cruel. So people have to become very quite conversant with the with the terminologies that bound um, the, all these aspects. So it's, a, it's an informative process for the public. It's an informative process for everybody. And, you know, it's being led by... Research now is, is just amazing um, how much research has been done in the last 10 years in horses alone and in dogs I know as well. But unfortunately, it's not a global thing yet. All we can do is set our standards and say, this is what we accept. And we've seen this in racing, you know. We've seen the change of the way that how often the 
whip is used in racing and the, and the the cut or the style of whip that is used now is doesn't doesn't hurt as much because it's got a great uh, higher surface area. It makes a louder sound, but apparently it doesn't hurt as much. And the number of times you can use it is also being governed and looked at, and that's the same in the standard bread industry as well. So you know all these changes are happening, and if they're happening in those in those sports, well, then that's really going to be the pro forma for the future. Yeah. John, that would be great if we talk a little bit in more depth. You know, we're talking about the evolution of the horse-human relationship and if we can sort of have that part three and bring it through and talk about, you know, focusing on the on the history of, um, you know, of the science-based research within the equine industry. But if we can talk about that next time, that would be great. And I think that would be also very helpful, you know, about just that relationship that we have with our horses. Well, that's right, and that's and, and we understand uh, it's not always about science. Sometimes it's about you know um, really making sure that the people and you you touched on this before is it having uh, companion animals for the welfare of um, people's um, mental capabilities and physical capabilities and all those things. You know, there's roles there for horses in a really really big way, and we've we've only just starting to scratch the surface. We don't really know how beneficial all these things are. It's only been done in the last 10 years or so and we're just starting to see the benefits of those changes now. And so that's the future. The future is actually, you know, really being able to enjoy the companion aspect of our horses and and treating them, you know, likewise. It definitely is another topic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That sounds great. John, I've got to say thanks very much for today. Well, you know, thanks for all your chats because you do, you come, you do the research. There's things like this that it's not, you know, I know a lot of the training you've done because you've done it so many times, you know, bringing foals on and keeping them going forward because you do it so much. But going back and checking out all this history and just getting everything, you know, just to make sure that it's all all right. So certainly, you know, we appreciate the work that you put in prior to the chats as well as the chats and looking forward to catching up with you again for uh, part three, the evolution of the horse-human relationship. But before you go, if people would like to contact you, they can go to horsechats.com, search for John or search for McLean. And I know the Train to Win page. Um, what's the best way? Is it the Train to Win Facebook page? Yeah, the Train to Win Facebook page works or my email address, uh, which is johnmclean at gmail.com, J-O-N-N-A-M-C-L-E-A-N at gmail.com. That'll work as well. Either either, that's fine. And um, if people don't get a reply, I always encourage them to pester me because I do get a little <laughs> forgetful. You do get busy, yeah. yeah. John, thanks very much again, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you, Glenners. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses, or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below. 